everybody. How's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? I'm doing okay. I recently received a bill for a service that was much higher than I thought the agreed-upon price was. So what I did was, I paid it, and then I felt bad. But the other thing that I did was think about all of the fun ways there are that I could have responded to receiving a bill that was higher than I thought it should have been. Would you like to hear them? Fortunately, the rhetorical nature of this medium puts me in the driver's seat, so I'm going to assume that you said yes. Okay, here's the first one. Okay, and that one, I opened the bill, did a double take, then looked at the person who gave it to me like they were a real asshole. Devastating, but doesn't translate to audio particularly well. Here's another. Well, it's a good thing we're near an optical shop, because I must need my eyes examined. For a second, it looked like the number on this bill was comically high. That one's pretty good, but it only really works if you're near an optical shop. Here's another one. Oh, I'm sorry, there seems to be some misunderstanding here. I expected you to write down the amount of money that I owe you, not for you to estimate the amount of times I would like to punch the owner of this business in the throat. Good guess, though. That one's pretty good, but maybe a trifle aggressive. Here's the final one. Um, yes, I have a question about my bill. When will I be receiving my clown nose and condom? Because... If you think that I'm going to pay this amount of money for the services rendered, you must clearly think that I'm a silly fuck. And scene. And there you have it. Four possible ways to respond to a bill being higher than you expected that you can think about before paying the bill and then feeling sad. Now, without any further ado, let's... Uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Robert McCarthy. Hawkeye is an archer that can never miss. Hawkeye is a person you would never miss. Synopsis. Thanks, Robert. Infinity Inc. Number 45. December 1987. Clusters. Part 2. Written by Roy Thomas and Dan Thomas. Drotted by Mike Gustavik, inkted by Mike Gustavik, lettered by Gene Simak, colored by Liz Barube, Marv Wolfman is listed as the Titans consultant, whatever that means, and there is no editor credited, which, yeah, sounds about right. Teen Titan Roll Call, Raven, Starfire, Wonder Girl, Cyborg. Beast Boy, Infinity Inkers, Obsidian, Nuclon, Wildcat, Jade, and Mr. Bones. 
Previously in the New Teen Titans. After beating up an ungulate-themed antagonist named Wildebeest, Jericho and Nightwing decided to use up their vacation days and take an unexcused absence from appearing in this comic book. Since they had a little extra space in their T-shaped skyscraper, the Titans decided to invite their pals Infinity Inc. over for a visit. Most of the Infinitors declined the offer as they were still mourning the recent death of a teammate, but a quintet of the costumed crime fighters, who were apparently either better at compartmentalizing their grief or not particularly close to their fallen comrade, took the Titans up on their offer. As the gang was giving their guests a tour of the tower, Raven started freaking out because her magic nonsense powers informed her that somewhere nearby, someone was hurt and pissed off. The avian-themed enchantress assumed the form of her shadowy soul bird avatar and flew off to investigate. When Obsidian, aka Todd Rice, witnessed Raven's transformation, he decided that since he too could turn into a shadow, he ought to tag along. The two crepuscular crusaders soon found that the source of the distress Raven sensed emanated from a submerged space shuttle that had crashed into the river nearby. In their insubstantial forms, the heroes hurried inside the sunken vessel to rescue any potential survivors, and were shocked to find that the spaceship was inhabited by Infinity Inc.'s old enemy, the Ultra-Humanite. Oh no! The Ultra-Humanite was an evil scientist who had transplanted his brain into the body of a mutant albino gorilla. After a recent tussle with the Infinitors, the sinister simian scientist had stolen a spaceship from NASA to make his escape. But Nuclon's mom, who was a rocket scientist for NASA, programmed the spaceship to fly into the sun. Problem solved. Only it wasn't. Because despite the fact that she was a rocket scientist, Nuclon's mom was no rocket scientist. Her trajectory was a few hundred miles off, and ultra-humanite's stolen spaceship careened off into deep space, where the ape-bodied evildoer eventually bumped into a writhing mass of what looked like squiggly pink space cereal, which wormed its way into his brain, gave him superpowers, and pointed his spaceship back towards the Earth. When the alien-infected super-gorilla awoke and found Raven and Obsidian attempting to rescue him, he lashed out angrily and used some newly acquired telekinesis to beat the shit out of Todd, nearly drowning the startled adventurer. As Raven dragged her fellow Shadow Shifter to the shore and used her powers to resuscitate him, a crazed ultra-humanite began leaping towards the city. The incensed anthropoid was intercepted by the combined forces of Infinity Inc. and the Teen Titans, but he made short work of the hastily assembled team, knocking out all eight heroes before continuing his journey. Raven and Todd were left to schlep the unconscious bodies of their fallen comrades up to the Titan Tower's sickbay before following the ultra-humanite into the city. As they flew, Todd brought up the fact that while she was healing him, he saw into Raven's soul and felt that there was some sort of affinity between the two heroes. But Raven told him that that was fucked up and he should drop the subject. Reluctantly, Todd did as he was asked. While our duo of do-gooders were having this awkward chat, the ultra-humanite and his squiggly cerebral stowaways had made their way to the roof of the tallest building they could find. From this lofty vantage point, the seemingly semi-somnambulating supervillain bellowed to the heavens, which called down a horde of the extraterrestrial pink scribbles he had encountered during his ill-fated space trip. The billions of squiggles Voltron together around the ultra-humanite, eventually forming a ten-story vaguely humanoid form that looked kind of like the Michelin Man wearing a translucent trash bag filled with fuchsia popcorn. Once fully congealed, this brobdignation by Bendem began Godzillaing around Manhattan, stomping on cars and buildings, and absorbing their matter like a swarm of space termites. 
When Obsidian and Raven caught up to the conglomerate creature, they attempted to dive into it and remove the ultra-humanite from its core, reasoning that that might discorporate the intergalactic gargantua. But their efforts were to no avail, as the cosmic kaiju easily rebuffed their attempted ingress, and injured the attempted infiltrators in the process. The pair of pummeled protagonists were about to retreat to the Titan Tower to seek reinforcements when Raven's Raven senses started tingling, informing the Azerathian empath that a child and his pregnant mother were trapped inside a nearby tenement building and were about to be absorbed by the ravenous space cereal. The embattled heroes managed to extract a mother and child, but the mother was too injured for them to transport her far without endangering the pregnancy. Leaving Raven behind to use her healing powers on the small family, Todd flew back to the Titan Tower, hoping against hope that he could return with the Titans and Infinitors in time to rescue Raven from the rapidly approaching Scribble Monster. Gadzooks! Does this celestial maelstrom of magenta muesli have any weaknesses? Why was Raven so quick to spurn Todd's advances? And has the return of the Ultra-Humanite taught our heroes that hurling supervillains into space is not a permanent solution? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so... Kinda magnets, kinda germs, but mostly the self-loathing of an evil super-ape. Because he's kind of a douche. And... Not so as you'd notice, no. Todd leads the combined forces of Infinity Inc. and the Teen Titans to where Raven is healing the convalescing child and pregnant mother. The heroes are able to hold the quasi-humanoid-shaped swarm of space critters at bay just long enough to pull the Azerathian empath and her patients to safety before the squiggles fully enveloped the area they had just occupied. Hooray! Raven is way more wiped out than she would normally be after healing, so Jade promises to take the mother and child to a safe place, and Obsidian escorts Raven back to the Titan Tower so that she can get some rest. As they leave, Cyborg tosses a chunk of something that fell off of the alien menace to Todd so that he and Raven can run it through the computers at the tower and see if they can figure out a way to defeat the abominable amalgamation of amorphous extraterrestrials. Todd drops the chunk in the river. Damn it, Todd! At Raven's insistence, he dives in after it and eventually retrieves the hunk of potentially world-saving rubble. Jade drops the young family off at what she deems a safe place, a sidewalk like 20 feet away from the monster, and makes them promise not to get eaten. Damn it, Jade! The assorted Titans and Infinitors try their various powers out against the big pile of pink nonsense, but to little avail. Cyborg's sonic blasts and Starfire's solar beams have some slight effect on the monster, but not much. Soon, the heroes are forced to retreat. I guess now's as good a time as any for a reminder of who these Infinity Inc. folks are anyway. Nuclon is Al Rothstein. He's a big strong guy who can make himself get bigger and stronger when he wants to. He has a red mohawk. Hi, Nuclon. Wildcat is Yolanda Montez. She's flippy and jumpy and has the cat-themed powers of agility and claw-having. About every fourth phrase she says is in questionably translated Spanish. Hi, Wildcat. Mr. Bones looks like a skeleton because his skin and organs are invisible. 
he sweats cyanide out of his hands, so he has to wear gloves all the time. And one time, his foster brother the street shark ate his leg. Also, he's very strong. Hello, Mr. Bones. Jade is Jenny Lynn Hayden. Her dad is the original Green Lantern, Alan Scott, and her mom is the supervillain, Thorn. She inherited her dad's ability to make random stuff out of hard green light, and her mom's ability to do some kind of plant stuff that doesn't come up in this issue. Also, she can fly. Hi, Jade. And lastly, Obsidian is Todd Rice. He's Jade's twin brother, but they were given up for adoption and raised in different homes, so they didn't meet until relatively recently. He didn't get either of his parents' powers, but he can turn into a shadow and do some nebulous shadowy stuff. Also, he can fly. Let's give a big tighten up the defense hello to Obsidian and the rest of Infinity Inc. When Todd and Raven get back to the tower, they run the weird space rock Vic threw at them through the Titan's computer. Raven's picked up some tech savvy from Dick and Cyborg over the years, so she knows how to yell, ENHANCE, at the screen until the computer tells them that while the space rock is mostly made out of nonsense, it also has a tiny amount of iron in it. Raven shares this information with the rest of the team, and Wonder Girl hatches a scheme to use Jade's power to make stuff out of light, Starfire Starbolts, and the Titan Tower's solar panels to make a giant solar-powered electromagnet. The post-adolescent Amazonian figures that if they point the giant magnet at the part of the unbalanced pink space breakfast that's terrorizing the city, maybe it'll go away or something. The details are a little hazy, but nobody has a better plan, so giant green magnet it is. The gang finishes cobbling together their plus-sized version of a fourth-grade science project and aims it at the monster. For a second, it looks like it might be starting to work. At the very least, they appear to be annoying the shambling haystack of Deglo Fusili. But then the creature rips up a water main, shoots it at the magnet, and mildly electrocutes the heroes who had been holding it. Whoops. Fortunately, Raven and Todd have another plan. Ooh, are they going to build a giant glowing green paper mache volcano and fill it with baking soda and vinegar? Sadly, they are not. I guess that after yelling at the computer to enhance a few more times, Raven noticed that the microbes that got on the rock when old Butterfinger's obsidian dropped it in the East River were starting to give the space rock the business. She suggests that her allies might want to try dumping as much river muck as they can on the giant blob of alien nonsense that walks like a man, and see if our Earth germs can give the collection of cosmic gibberish the War of the Worlds treatment and send it packing. All the heroes pitch in and do their best to coat the squiggle beast in as much mud as they can, so that the microbes from the polluted river can go to town on it. Like the magnet gambit, the river slop plan works. Until it doesn't. The cosmic creep starts to stagger a bit, but then it busts open a gas main and burns all the goo off of itself. Bummer. The bad news is, the alien menace is, if anything, stronger than ever. The good news is... <sighs> Raven and Todd have yet another plan. Oh good, the Washington generals of thwarting alien invasions are on the case. I guess we can all rest easy now.
At first glance, the new plan seems, if anything, even less promising than their previous brainstorms. The two shadow avatar adventurers aim to turn intangible, zoom into the middle of the cataclysmic collective of clusters, and yoink the ultra-humanite out of it. They reckon that if the perfidious primate isn't there to drive the mound of microscopic monsters around, maybe they'll just dissipate and fuck off back to space. There's only one problem with this ingenious plan. I mean, you know, other than the fact that the theory behind it doesn't actually seem to be based on anything. And that's that they tried to do pretty much this exact thing last issue and failed miserably. But I guess this time they must try harder or something, because they managed to climb into the creature's innards with relative ease. Inside the amorphous assemblage of ridiculousness is a bizarre bioorganic cavern replete with living semi-crystalline stalagmites and stalactites. It's the kind of place David Cronenberg might design if he was super into spelunking. And bad at drawing. The two heroes make their way to the strange cave's center, where they find the ultra-humanite encased in one of the weirdo stalagmites. Todd wants to kick Ulti's ass, but Raven's like, Hold up, Todd. I can sense that the humanite is not driving the monster car. Rather, it is driving him, and he fucking hates it. It turns out that the alien collective is merely using the ultra-humanite's mind as a focal point for their own scattered and fractured ambitions. The process is parasitic rather than symbiotic, and it's causing the ultra-humanite an almost unfathomable amount of pain. Raven realizes that the reason she was so tired after healing the expectant mother earlier was because when she turned her powers on to heal the lady, she had inadvertently absorbed a percentage of the humanite's pain as well. Raven's about to once again employ her empathic abilities to ease the ensconced ape-man's agony, but Todd is like, Nah, fuck that guy. We should let him suffer. Um, for, for strategy reasons. Y yeah, that's it. See, I bet if we both use our ill-defined powers to make him feel really bad about all the shitty stuff he's done in his life, and he's in agonizing physical pain, then probably that will make him strong enough to break free from the influence of these colorful whatevers. Yeah, Todd, because I know I'm always at my most focused when I'm riddled with pain and self-loathing. For some reason, Obsidian's plan seems reasonable to Raven, and even more implausibly, it works. Once the ultra-humanite is sufficiently bummed out about what a piece of shit he is and all the horrible stuff he's done, Todd and Raven are able to easily pluck him out of his quasi-crystal cocoon and zoom out of the amalgamated alien's makeshift thorax. Hooray! Once the coalition of creatures is no longer associated with a host, Jade and Starfire pick up its inert husk and throw it into space. Hooray! I guess. I mean, it seems like it's probably just a matter of time before the Calamitous Collective hooks up with another host. But I guess if it does, that'll just give Todd another chance to use his astounding power to make an old man feel bad about himself. Once the menace is abated and the ultra-humanite is appropriately melancholy, the motley assortment of heroes decides to have a celebratory poolside barbecue. As Mr. Bones grills burgers and Beast Boy, predictably and creepily, hits on a decidedly uninterested Jade, Todd pulls Raven aside for a heart-to-heart. -heart. He's like, When we were together earlier, I felt a deep and resonant connection to you. 
it's like our souls touched. I mean, I think they literally did, but also it's like they metaphorically did too, you know? Raven is like, Well, Todd, you seem like a nice man. A nice, strange man. Goodbye. Todd thinks to himself, Well, shit. Guess I might as well go home to my girlfriend. Man, fuck you, Todd. The end. Hooray! And joining us once again via the magic of telephonic communication is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how's it going? Hey, man. It's going pretty good, I gotta say. I don't know, I'm a little confused after reading this comic, but I, otherwise, things are okay. Glad to hear it. How are you? Um, I'm not great. I, I was telling you before we started recording, I'm a little bit under the weather. Pretty sure it's allergies, but, you know, what with the current climate, the idea that it's not is equal parts scary and infuriating. Sure, yeah. <laughs> like, if I caught something that wasn't just allergies right now where did i get it because i haven't been making contact with anyone for like a year now so it'd be like getting an std from a toilet seat where it's just like wait a minute i didn't even get to fuck yeah and also nobody's gonna believe that exactly so uh yeah i'm okay but also my brain's a little bit loopy on what's hopefully allergies and the allergy medication that I've taken to counteract the hopefully allergies, so uh, should be an interesting show. Mm, okay. Do you add any alcohol to that mix? No, no, but what I do have is what I think is going to be a panacea for whatever ails me, which is Dr. Brown's Celery Soda. Oh, uh, yeah. I feel like my body will be so busy trying to figure out whether I like this soda or not that it won't have time to be sick. Hmm. Maybe you can alternate it with Moxie. Uh, Moxie, I have a more clear understanding of my feelings towards. <laughs> it's like every time you drink it, you're like, why am I still doing this? Exactly. With the celery soda, it really is a thing where like with every sip, I'm just like, I think I like this. And then I'll take another. It's like, no, this is bad. Huh. Hmm. Yeah, it's a weird one. I've only had a, a little bit of it, and um, yeah, it's beguiling. I think I like it. Who can say for sure? Hmm. Well, moving on to something that I suspect we may have less mixed emotions about. You want to talk about a comic book? Sure, let's do it. Corey, what did you think about this comic book? Um, when I was a kid... I, th I think it was my mom taught me, like, to be polite to say that you don't like something is to say, oh, it wasn't my favorite. Hmm. I think I, I would say this wasn't my favorite. Yeah, I would say, man, this was bad. Yeah, that's another way to say it. Like, just across the board, I think in the last issue, we talked about the fact that, well, I still think the last issue wasn't either of our favorites. It was readable because the art was good enough and was done in a way that I think kind of counterbalanced some of the worst impulses of the writing. And in this, it's it's not. Mm -hmm. 
I had trouble getting through this one, I gotta say. Yeah, it it wasn't great. And uh, it did seem to just kind of go on for a while. Yeah, in like three separate places, it was like they had a solution to the problem. And then, oh no, that wasn't the right solution. Which is fine, and that can work as a formula. Like, that part kind of reminded me of, like, an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. I feel like that would be the way it would go a lot. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, it wasn't like with each possible solution they were getting closer. It was like, oh, they're unrelated. Here's another thing that can happen. Uh -huh. What's the page count? Okay, I guess that can't be the solution. Here's another one. Mm -hmm. It went from, okay, maybe we can magnet this guy up to, oh, War of the World situation. They're from space. They're going to be fucked up by our dirty microbes and shit. Mm -hmm. To, ah, fuck it. If we make the gorilla mad, then we'll just throw this thing into space. Yeah, but the dirty microbes bit happens on, like, page, what, 17 or something? And after mm -hmm. that, I was like, oh, no. It's like, <laughs> they're not going to finish. There's not going to be a third part, is there? <laughs> I was just waiting for them to try something else, and then that would fail, and they'd be like, next, tune in when we try the fourth thing. Oh, and thank goodness that was not the case. I like both of these teams, obviously. I like the new Teen Titans. I like Infinity Inc. for the most part. I think they're interesting characters, but there didn't seem to be any reason why two teams needed to be involved in this story. This could have easily been an Infinity Inc. story or a Teen Titans story. There wasn't any particular reason to bring the teams together. There wasn't any real interplay between them other than I guess they had the, oh, there's two shadowy people. So the dude's going to have a crush on the lady and she's not going to be into it. And there's two green people, so the dude's going to have a crush on the lady and she's not going to be into it. That was really the only interplay between the characters that you got. There wasn't the often lampooned misunderstanding where they have a big fight, which, yeah, it's cliche, but there is something at least exciting about that. Seeing a writer basically picking up two sets of action figures and smashing them together. We don't get that. We, we just, we don't get much. Yeah, and with that action figure analogy in mind, I did find myself thinking, you know, when, when you, as a creator of a franchise, like the Teen Titans kind of lend your toys out to somebody to use, and it goes like this, are you just like, oh, I wish I hadn't done that? Mm. Wolfman and Perez, or or is it that you've made so many of these things, you're just like, eh, whatever. At least I didn't have to write this one. Right. I get the impression that at this point, it's more the latter. I think maybe earlier in the run, it would have been the other way. But I think this is during a period where Marv Wolfman is either suffering from or just coming out of a fairly notorious bout of writer's block. So I think at this point it was just like, oh, thank God, somebody else is doing this for a minute. Mm -hmm. It's... I feel bad shitting on this. I like some Roy Thomas stuff, and I, I don't want to be punching down on the art team, but it was rough. The art is done by a guy named Mike Gustavich. He is probably best known for a series called Justice Machine, which was an independently published comic book. Went through, I think, like six different small press publishers during its run. And then he's probably better known as an inker than a penciler. He had an extended run on the series Icon in the 90s, which I thought was pretty good. 
I suspect there may have been time issues. He's doing both the pencils and the inks. And especially the fact that the second half of the book, there is kind of a noticeable drop off in the quality of the art, I felt. Did you feel that way too? I guess what I noticed in that was this thing of like, well, I'm just going to start drawing one type of uh, eyes (laughs) and put them on everyone. And you don't have like uniform head size from one panel to the next with the same character. That's something that comes up with Jade later on in a very noticeable way. I was like, what happened? She used to be an attractive character. What is going on? Yeah, and she she goes from having a very ovoid, very tall head to having a very scrunched down, like, small circle head. And, like, I want to be like, oh, that's a stylistic choice that they're doing. That did not seem to be the case. It reminded me of the art that I've seen in a fair amount of small press comic books, especially superhero stuff. And I've read a fair amount of them, and some of them are very good. But I feel like with small press superhero comics, you get one of two things going on. It's either the artist is doing something very interesting that maybe they wouldn't be able to do at a larger publisher, or you get something that, frankly, is not good enough to be published by a larger publisher. Mm. It reminds me a lot of the Mountain Brothers. A, uh, a hip-hop combo from Philadelphia that I think we're both a fan of. They have a line that's, you're not underground, you're whack, know the difference. Mm-hmm. And uh, I gotta say, this art is whack. Yeah, yeah, I'm sad to say it. I agree. I was looking in the credits, and I was like, hmm, do I hang this on the penciler or the inker? Oh. Same guy. Not the colorist, probably, because they're not responsible for head size and eyeballs although i did miss the colorist that we are used to this is i think the first issue that we have read that was not colored by adrienne roy and i think her absence from it is noticeable there are scenes in which it takes a second because the characters are not colored in a way that we're used to seeing them and there are also just some big swings that are taken in terms of the coloring of background panels and things in general Like, there is less detail in the backgrounds, which I think is partly due to the fact that it is probably time constraints and he was penciling and inking the whole thing, which is a lot of work. But the backgrounds in those panels are colored in very, very brightly and not in a particularly consistent way, which makes the whole thing a little bit more surreal than I think was intended. The colorist is actually a woman named... Liz Barub. I'm probably mispronouncing that, and apologies. But she was known mostly for doing a bunch of very stylized romance comics that she illustrated for DC in the 70s. And there are touches of that kind of psychedelia to her color choices that are made in this. Like, there are scenes where when they are splashing around by the pool, the pool water is bright green in a way that was very off-putting to me and confusing. And there's a lot of scenes in which there's sky and water, and it's tough to tell which is which because one will be green and one will be pink. There was a lot of that going on, and it made me miss Adrienne Roy and made me, it really highlights the fact that she does bring a lot to the book generally. Yeah, the color contrast, especially like the kind of 
bright pinks and almost like neon or iridescent blues and greens also to me really reminded me of like t-shirts and those hair feathers and like these mid-80s kind of fashion things oh totally it's a very ocean pacific color job on this issue (laughs) yep well we're uh spreading around the blame for this issue you know what? Let's uh, let's kick a little over to the letterer, uh, Gene Simek, who generally, I think, does very good work. And for the most part, that is the case in this. But there is one choice that is made that ended up being distracting and confusing to me, which was many characters talk in the wavy, edged balloons that we have come to associate with Raven's speech. Mm-hmm. And the same effect is used to convey many different styles of talking in this book and it threw me for a loop on a number of occasions raven's dialogue is all in those wavy edged word balloons mr bones's rhyming dialogue which i'm not sure what he's supposed to sound like but i don't think he's supposed to sound like raven Mm -mm. is in the same balloon style and with the same font and about half the time obsidian is maybe that's why raven doesn't like him she feels like She's being mocked because he's either consciously or unconsciously talking like she is. I had actually the same thought. It's, you know, like the uh, imitation is the most sincere form of flattery. He's like maybe just picking up an Azerathian accent while he's talking to her. And she's like, no, seriously, this is wrong, Todd. I know, but it's cool, (laughs) right? No, it's not cool, Todd. Knock it off. Oh, sorry, Raven. (laughs) I mean, maybe that's what they were talking about last issue, because we really don't get any closure on that. Other than Todd is, I guess, into her and she's not into it. And then he's like, "Eh, I guess I'll go hang out with my girlfriend then. He is a real bag of shit. Yeah. Well, if it makes you feel better, his girlfriend is secretly in league with a bunch of fascist space robots who are focal to the big DC crossover event that's coming up. Hmm. I don't know. Uh, Two wrongs don't make a right. Tough but fair. Thank you. One of the byproducts of that big crossover event is a series called The New Guardians, which features a supervillain named Snowflame, Do you want to guess how he gets his superpowers? Um, he's caught in a snowstorm, but then gets caught on fire? No, no, no. He does cocaine. (laughs) Yeah. And then he gets firepower? He has specialized cocaine-fueled powers. Wait, does he need to do cocaine to get his powers going? Yes, he does. Wow. Yeah. That sounds like a really irritating character. Yeah, his main superpower is that when he tells a joke and you don't laugh, he says it again louder, because he assumes that if you didn't laugh, you must not have heard it the first time. So let's talk about a couple of specific panels that weirded me out with how they were executed. At one point, Beast Boy turns into what I think is supposed to be a dog. Mm Mm-hmm. Do you know the panel I'm talking about? When they're digging the mud onto the um, Crunchberry? Not Crunchberry. What's this? What's the creature's name? Clusters? Clusters. The million, million somethings? Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. He looks like some kind of, I don't know, like a like a pig dog bear hybrid, which made me wonder if he is actually the kind of creature that that one guy in that most disturbing scene from The Shining was cosplaying as. Oh. Is he a pig dog blowjob bear? Is that what he turned himself into to try to dig up a bunch of mud from a river? Well, shit. Ugh. It is a really disturbingly drawn dog, too, because it's, like, proportions are all wrong, but it's also got a human-shaped buttocks. Yeah. Is it possible that Beast Boy just doesn't know what a dog looks like? I mean, we've been over the fact that he probably has a subscription to zoo books, so he doesn't have an excuse if he just doesn't know what a dog looks like. You know, as much as I like to shit on Beast Boy, I'm not hanging this one on him. <laughs> I think he's just drawn wrong. Okay. One of the other panels that I found pretty disturbing was a montage scene of the Ultra Humanite. When, so I guess part of their plan is Todd figures that the Ultra Humanite will only be able to break free of the evil space serial if he feels really bad about himself. While being in enormous physical pain. Yeah. I don't think that's how you get stronger. Hmm. It also doesn't, I mean, there's nothing to indicate that him being halfway trapped in space serial puts him into a mental state where he's more, you know, reflective of his actions, right? It's just that he's in pain. Right. And Raven's like, we have to get him out of pain. And Todd's like, no, <laughs> this way he'll know what a bad person he is. It does not work like that as far as I know. No, and we have no idea why Todd thinks that's the case either, or if he just really hates this guy and wants to be a dick to him, which I get because the Ultra Humanite is a real fucking dick. But putting all that aside, when they execute that scene, the way that the Ultra Humanite is drawn, and he's drawn this way throughout the issue, he doesn't look like a mutant gorilla. Like, he's bald, which I don't think is generally the case with him. And he just looks like an old man with a beard and vampire fangs instead of teeth. Yeah, but he also has that eyebrow equivalent of a handlebar mustache or a Van Dyke beard. I don't know how you describe it. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. It's like he's got an arrow bee made out of, <laughs> out of eyebrows that goes all the way around his head. Yeah, it was very disturbing to me. I did not like it. I don't like it either, but apparently... Mike Gustavich did like it because he uses that one drawing of the guy one, two, three, four, five, six different times on that one page. Mm -hmm. Like, that is the exact same drawing. He just puts the, intersperses that panel with other panels of things that are happening. And I get that that could be an effective technique, but it looks like a time-saving one. And if you're going to use the same panel six times, don't make it a panel where the dude looks like Okay, did you ever watch the 70s animated Hobbit movie? Uh, I think so, yeah. You know how the dwarves in that just look like anthropomorphic scrotums? Um, I don't remember thinking that. I saw it as a kid. Well, I saw it pretty recently, and those dwarves look like walking nutsacks. And uh, that's kind of what the ultra-humanite looks like in this. Certainly more than he looks like an albino gorilla. Although I guess the word mutant maybe does a lot of heavy lifting and he can look like whatever after you throw that word in there. Yeah, it's still pretty bad. Yeah. 
Also, I, I really do have to take issue on that same page with the description of uh, the actress whose body he occupies as a movie goddess. You know, it doesn't say what she's a goddess of. Yeah, but, oh, come on. We associate that term with, you know, conventional beauty, like a high degree of bilateral symmetry, like the usual stuff that you, people respond to in faces. And this character is not drawn that way. It's possible that she is the movie goddess of foreheads. <laughs> that could be it. Very high foreheads. We also see that the Titans have a rooftop pool for the Titan Tower. I don't think that's something that's come up before. I thought previously their pool had always been in their hologram room. Yeah, but Beast Boy or somebody played a weird joke where they filled it with that green slime like from the Nickelodeon show. Oh, like they're all saying, I don't know, and then he starts splashing them. I think so. Yeah, that was a weird choice. Also, I gotta say, you've already had one giant demon try to use your skyscraper as a toilet. Putting a pool on the roof doesn't make it look less like a toilet. Hmm. Do you want Trigons shitting in your tower? Because this is how you get Trigons shitting in your tower. Oh, man, that's good advice for architects everywhere. <laughs> So I feel like the pool on buildings is kind of a thing these days. Oh, boy, you're asking for trouble. Or, more specifically, you're asking for a building filled with demon shit. Which, you know, I think constitutes trouble. By almost any definition of the word, yeah. <laughs> I was honestly surprised at how little of Roy Thomas's typically very flowery narration there is in this issue. There is a very low caption to word bubble ratio in this, which is not something I generally associate with Roy Thomas's writing. But uh, the ones that we do get, I still did find frustrating. Specifically, the scene where we see that the Titans have made their roof more toilet-like. We have a caption in the corner. This is after they have decided to solve all their problems by throwing the bad guy into space, which worked so well for them last time. Like, that's how they got the ultra-humanite into this. He's not even in a space shuttle this time. <laughs> you can't solve all of your problems by throwing things into space. Although, to be fair, if I had super strength, I would try to solve most of my problems by throwing things into space. There's probably a lot you, you could, at least, you know, out of sight, out of mind. Right. But after things have been resolved in that way, we see everybody's hanging out, and then we get a caption in the upper corner that says, and the morning and the evening are the first day. What did you make of that? I don't know. I was kind of like, okay, so if two trains leave the station <laughs> traveling at different <laughs> speeds, nope. It, it has the feeling of a koan or a mathematical word problem, but not correctly written. Yeah. So it's a Bible quote. Or almost a Bible quote. Did I just equate the Bible with a word problem? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you did. <laughs> Tough one to solve, too. Hmm. It's from Genesis. I'm paraphrasing this part, but after the Lord made the earth, he created the light and called it the day, and he created the dark and called it the night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. And so when Roy Thomas starts off a page by saying, and the morning and the evening are the first day, I don't know what he's getting at if it is a on purpose 
inversion of that that he's doing, or if it's just a misremembered Bible quote. Either way, I'm not sure what it's supposed to signify, other than, oh, that sounds like deep and literary, so I think I'll put it there even though it doesn't make sense. Uh, which is one of the problems that I have with Roy Thomas's writing. I feel like he has a tendency to do those things that are like, oh, I don't really know what this means, but I think it'll make me look smart, so I'll put it there. Mm. That is a not very nice way to describe it, and maybe it's more of a me issue than a his writing issue, but that's the way it struck me, and that's the way this strikes me. Maybe because they saved the world, then it's like a new beginning, and so because it's a new beginning, then it's like the first day on Earth again. But backwards? Man, you put way more thought into that than me. By that point in the book, I was just like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> because it started out with a quote, and I was like, okay, this is going to like set the tone for the story. The King Kong quote? Yeah, on page two, has that word box where it says, The beast was a tough guy, too. He could lick the world. But he went soft. He forgot his wisdom, and the little fellas licked him. Filmmaker Carl Denham in King Kong, the real one. And I was like, oh, okay, that's gonna, that's some foreshadowing or something. I guess it was foreshadowing another King Kong reference that was made a few pages later. Because Mr. Bones then says, like, uh, King Kong was tough, but I'm in the buff. I don't remember what he said, <laughs> but it was about King Kong and it rhymed. Yeah, I did. Did you get the why that? quote was there was it something about how like ultra humanite was the tough guy and then the space serial were the little guys that beat him up or i think it's just there's a big monster trashing new york so i'll put a king kong quote here oh, it doesn't make any damn sense in that context i guess maybe the ultra humanite is the big guy who forgets his wisdom and then the evil space serial would be the little guys who licked him mm-hmm but then there should be a continuation of the quote that then, but then the big guy remembered his wisdom and realized he was a jerk. And then he licked the little guys, sort of. And then some medium guys came along and threw the little guys into space. But the medium guys didn't want to lick the little guys because they had previously covered them in river muck. Yeah. But I don't think that's a quote from King Kong. It's been a while since I've seen that, though. Yeah, I don't think there was any space tossing. So, You know what I didn't like about the whole space serial analogy in this book was I feel like there's a couple points where coral reefs get a really bad rap. And barnacles! Yeah, it's just like, he's like, I'm just going to pick stuff that's small and grows. And uh, now it's all evil. Man, what did coral reefs ever do to you, Roy and Dan Thomas? Maybe they were on a a vacation and they went into the water and they got scratched it is sharper than it looks yeah I, I will say that about coral reefs still no reason to disparage it yeah they've been through enough mm -hmm. so you know what while we're nitpicking on page 25 <laughs> the sound effect as a very very odd very oblong headed jade is trying to dissuade Beast Boy's amorous advances. She is getting splashed from behind, and there's a sound effect that I can't figure out because it says S-P-L-O on one side of her head, and then O-S-H on the other side of her head. And this is, as I mentioned, not an insubstantial head. So, do you think that sound effect is supposed to be 
splosh? Or are there just a series of O's behind her head so that it's sploosh? Yeah, I read it that there's like four or five O's behind her, which, mm. I don't know, that's a pretty long sploosh. It is indeed. Well, there's much more berating of this comic book to do, but I think most of it will come up in the minutia. Is there anything else you wanted to bring up before we get into the minutia? Yeah, I, I agree most of it will. I guess just on a lighter note, or, well, no, this is kind of an underhanded compliment because I guess I was disappointed that the idea didn't get really explored further. But the premise of this is potentially really interesting, that there's some, you know, entity whose prime directive is to reproduce, but in order for that to happen, it, it needs to parasitically borrow an intellect. And I feel like we usually think of parasites as things that use bodies, mm. you know, or some other way to spread rather than figuring out that they actually need to take over the intelligence of a creature or being to accomplish their goals. And, and without that, they don't have that same biological imperative or they don't know how to accomplish it. No, I agree. That part is a very interesting idea and is one of the things about it that gives it a feeling like this could be a fun episode of Star Trek. But yeah, the execution just isn't there. I too like the idea of these disparate creatures that are a hive mind but are without a singular focus. And so they need an entity to who has an intellect that they can focus their vague ambitions onto, like a wick and a candle. And that will like keep them unified so that they can be the best parasite that they can be, I guess. And yeah, I think there's something there that could have been explored in a really interesting way, and it was not. Yeah, it kind of reminded me of, there was like a news story a while ago about, it was uh, debunking the so-called crazy cat lady parasite. Mm -hmm. Did you hear about that? No, I thought that was still a thing. What is that called again? Tox Toxo Toxoplasmosis? Toxoplasma something or other. But so it's a parasite that basically can sexually reproduce only in cats. Oh, yeah, that's why they call it the Andrew Lloyd Webber parasite. Yeah. And, you know, goes out through their, their poop, but then that affects rodents. And so they did these experiments where they're thinking that the rodents that were affected by it weren't scared of cats anymore, so they got eaten. And so then, you know, the cats could propagate and then there was more parasites and they're like oh my gosh this thing's so smart but it turns out it wasn't just making the mice not afraid of cats it was just making them like super laid back about everything oh yeah and and probably you know not causing people to collect cats good to know yeah so i was like well that would be a that'd be a fun like space cereal right if you just say hey everybody relax that would be a fun space cereal. <laughs> yeah, you could just call it space cereal. I think they sell that at the dispensary down the street. Wouldn't surprise me. Each mind-altering box comes with a little toy plastic albino gorilla in it. I'm getting hungry just thinking about it. Let's take a little snack break while Rick sings us into the minutia. We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Cory eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, Corey, what do you want to start off with? Oh, geez. You just want to dive into uh, Best and Worst? All right, let's do it. Every issue of a new Teen Titans comic has an Aqualad, the greatest of Teen Titans, and also a Beast Boy, 
the worst of Teen Titans. In this issue, who do you have as your Aqualad, and who did you have as your Beast Boy? For my Aqualad, I selected Raven for ultimately saving the day, mm-hmm. and uh, also that family. Yep, I had Raven, I guess, for being suddenly good at science and computers, and knowing that even though they couldn't before, now her and Todd could pop inside the space cereal, man. Yep. Would have saved us about 15 pages if they had figured that out earlier, but... Well, I mean, they tried to in the last issue, and they couldn't, but... I don't know, maybe now that he's all drowsy with river muck, they can? Yeah, I don't know, but nobody else really did... Like, all the Titans and most of the Infinity Inc. did stuff... Yeah, they did busy work, it seemed like. Mm. Like, hey, let's work on them making a magnet that doesn't do anything. Yeah. And let's all toss river muck at the space cereal man. But yeah, ultimately to little effect. Mm-hmm. And then also, I mean, I guess shame on Obsidian for trying to fool an empath into knowing he's not a shit. But good for her for knowing that. <laughs> Well, I think he tried to throw her off the trail, too, by uh, distracting her by changing his hair color twice in three panels. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, on the last page, he goes from blonde to brunette back to blonde. Yeah, he's just, he's trying too hard. Conversely, who did you have as your beast boy? I had Obsidian. I felt like his care for Raven came across as like telling her to wait in the car. Mm-hmm. He dropped that special rock that Cyborg gave him. <laughs> Had to be told to go back and get it. He did the keep the girlfriend on the back burner thing, which mm-hmm. is not cool. And when it came time for them to fly inside the cereal monster, I feel like he was really disappointed there wasn't a butt to fly into. <laughs> Do you know the panel I'm talking about? I'm going to take another look at it because I wasn't struck by that particularly. It's on page 18, and he's like, so there's no mouth, or, um, how are we going to get into this thing? There's no mouth, or, hmm, well, maybe we could take another look, I guess. Yeah, that is one of the panels where I got confused, because both Raven and Obsidian are talking in the same space accent, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's the other thing. He was doing a fake accent, which seldom goes over well. Yeah. I had not registered that Obsidian was a potential choice, so I confined mine to the actual Teen Titans, and I came up with what what I think it seems like is, at least in some ways, Obsidian's counterpart, which is Beast Boy. Mm. I said Beast Boy because he's a creep who doesn't know what a dog is. Yeah, who puts a man butt on a dog? <laughs> a square man's butt. Maybe that's why the cereal man doesn't have a butt, because uh, Beast Boy's out here hogging all the butts. Bad job, Beast Boy. Leave some butts for everybody else. (laughs) Fucking creep. Sartorially speaking, were there any elements of fashion you wanted to focus on in this issue? Yeah, well, just one, really, which was Bones... And his speedo and gloves. And, like, there's not penis bones, as far as I know, in humans. So why does he need to wear a speedo if he's just a skeleton? Well, maybe to just, as a courtesy, like, if you're at a pool party, you don't want to bump into anybody. Mm. Like, 
I can see that being an issue. I gotta say, that was one of the few moments in the issue that gave me some genuine joy, was seeing the skeleton man in a Speedo and gloves and a chef hat flipping burgers, and apparently just having a great time. I was like, that is some weird, goofy shit, and I am here for it. It is also one of the only panels in the book where his skeleton head looks like an actual skull, and not like a weird skeleton mask over a regular head. Mm-hmm. It's a very nicely drawn panel, and I was like, yeah, good for him. That actually seems like a lot of fun. No, I, I, I love the, the panel, and I got a kick out of it. It's just, it struck me as odd that you would put a Speedo on a skeleton. Yeah, I think that's probably just so as, you know, Dick and Balls doesn't brush up against people when he's at a pool party. Or, frankly, when he's cooking. Wait, does he have, like, a, it, it's, a it's an invisible body that fills out his costume and the skeleton is just the visible part yes all of his guts and skin are invisible so he has them you just can't see them okay so he has junk then so then it makes sense that you're not wanting to get that near the barbecue or people exactly and it's cyanide junk too right i don't know i got i had thought that just his hands exuded junk if that's not the sorry I had thought that just his hands exuded the cyanide because he's got the cyanide touch. But if it's his whole body, then that is an incredibly irresponsible outfit for him to wear. Right. I mean, he clearly has the cyanide in the rest of him because when his brother ate his leg, his brother died of cyanide poisoning. Mm. So it's, it's like in his blood. Maybe it just comes out through his sweat. I think it is just through his touch, though, that it generally would affect people. although. I mean, it would be potentially another reason to keep that Speedo on. Okay, fair enough. That was all I had for fashion. (laughs) Mine was kind of a stretch. There were two moments of fashion that I noticed. That was definitely one of them, and that will come up again in my favorite panel. The other fashion thing is one of my other favorite panels, so I'll save that for later. Other than that, there's a bit of a stretch. I don't know if this can necessarily be considered fashion, but I liked when... Ultra Humanite had his flashback of wearing a giant flying ant body for a while. Hmm. I think that's a fun fashion choice, wearing a giant flying ant's body and being ridden around by, I believe that is Lana Lang as the insect queen, which I think was why he turned into a giant bug or put his brain in a giant bug so that then he could then control a woman who had bug powers. It was some Silver Age shit. It's hard to make sense of it. Well, I'm glad you explained the Lana Lane thing, because I couldn't figure out what they were trying to do with the art there. I was like, is he still a lady, or is he just a bug now, or what's going on? Yeah, no, I think I think he was a bug who was being ridden around by a lady. Oh, of course, yeah. Which is an interesting fashion choice. Mm-hmm. You know what? Let's just get into favorite panels. My absolute favorite panel is the naked skeleton chef it just that was so much fun and i really dug that it cracked me up and as i said was actually really well drawn yeah i actually had that as my favorite panel too other than that and tangentially related to fashion the other panel that really cracked me up is a couple of pages before that on page 23 a panel which i call sad gorilla man pokes at his cool hots <laughs> it does look like he's just poking him. 
<laughs> it's he's so sad. He's just been bummed out enough to win the day by his good buddy Obsidian, and he's saying sob choke and sadly poking at his culottes with one finger, like he is Paul Hollywood trying to mash up somebody's cake that he doesn't think is dry and crumbly enough. Hmm. You think he has a British accent? Probably. He's got those gorilla hands like Paul Hollywood does. <laughs> That's true. The same piercing blue eyes, <laughs> same white hair. Hmm. Same self-important handshakes. Underproved. I didn't do it with the accent. I was trying to go gorilla, but I lost the British. Mm, Accents it's are tough. Hard. It's tough to try to do both. Yeah. Let's see. Let me try a British gorilla. Um, a British gorilla, Paul Hollywood. No snob. Uh, I I don't know if the British came through from the gorilla there. As as a as a tough one. Underproved. <laughs> oh wait 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 wait! I can do it. I'm Paul Hollywood, and that's underproved. I'm not getting the gorilla. I'm sorry. Oh, uh, that was implied when I said I was Paul Hollywood. Oh. Snap! No snap. <laughs> exactly. He wants everything to be so dry and crumbly. Yeah, but not stodgy. That guy wants his toast cooked at 200 degrees for an hour. Wait, Celsius? No. Okay, that would be burnt. Yeah, no, he just wants it cooked low and slow so that it sucks all of the moisture out. Ah, got it. He doesn't want anything seared on the outside, searing in the moisture. Mm-hmm. Fucking Paul Hollywood. So I also liked on page 15 <laughs> when Jade throws the first giant pile of mud or gets it out of the water. It looks like a giant poop. Yeah. And I had a little moment of like feeling bad for the cereal monster. I was <laughs> just like, oh, that's things are going to get so gross. That is also one of the few panels where the cereal monster's squiggles are all like cerulean blue instead of pink or red or whatever hmm. maybe he was worried like that's maybe like the color that he changes for anti-poop shielding no i just meant like concerned you know worried that he's gonna get mud thrown on him so he turned blue okay i, I don't know i don't know how these <laughs> things work tough but fair like he's trying to hide and he tries to hide by turning bright turquoise it's a bad comic <laughs> Corey, who did you have as your president of the drama club in this issue? Which character acted, or rather overacted, in the most dramatic fashion? Oh yeah, this one I, I went with the ultra-humanite for screaming with his mouth open for two pages straight, one of which is the same picture over and over, and then ugly crying whilst poking out his culottes. Hmm. Do you think maybe, like, so Todd and Raven are putting all of those images into his head to try to bum him out enough that he'll shake off the space cereal, and he wasn't really paying attention, but then he noticed that his culottes were torn, and he was like, no! <laughs> these are my only clothes. <laughs> oh, I love these culottes so much! Yeah. I don't know, man. Could be. Yeah. I, I had it down to either him or Todd for adopting an Azerathian accent. Oh, I had Todd as a runner-up, too, for throwing the binoculars when he was mad. Mm-hmm. That's a shitty thing to do. That made me so angry. <laughs> I was like, you're throwing one piece of expensive equipment at the other expensive equipment that you're using to try and solve your problem. And I don't think either of those pieces of equipment belonged to him. He's a guest in the Titan Tower. No, it was a very 
bad move. Yeah. Very dramatic. So I think I'm going to give him the slight edge. I think just balance it out, make sure that uh, both he and the Ultra Humanite get a chance to put their hands on the drama game ball. Well, let's do our Battle of the Band names. In last week's contest, we saw our tightest contest yet. It came down to, I think, probably a single vote. The final score was 49% to 51%, with the writhing obscenities barely edging out Phantom Threshold as the new champion. Damn. So if you think that your vote doesn't count, I want you to remember this result. Anyway, Corey, were you able to find a band name in this issue that you want to put up against the gritty dance core of the writhing obscenities? I have a couple choices. It's going to be tough, though, because that's writing obscenities is quite the quite the name. Mm-hmm. The first one is, gosh, what kind of music do they play? They probably sound kind of like the White Stripes. And uh, they're called Whistling Past the Graveyard. Corey, I had the same one. Did you? Yeah. So not a band. I looked it up. It's a, a song, but not a band. No, I think that is a, a good uh, choice. Yeah, I can see them being kind of white stripesy. That wouldn't have been my initial thought, but uh, I can see them going that direction. I'm, I'm thinking there's some element of blues to it because they're like probably named themselves after the Screamin' Jay Hawkins song. Oh, right. That actually makes a lot of sense. For other possibilities, I had the electrical bombardment. <laughs> I, I think that's just like a wall of noise band. Uh, uh-huh. uh, like like a, lot of, a lot of guitar fuzz going on in there. Mm-hmm. And the other one that I had was the firebreak approach, hmm. which I think is probably kind of like cerebral math rocky shit. Did you have any others? I did. I had one other, which was herd of hippos. Oh man, herd of hippos is really good. They're like flock of seagulls, but heavier. <laughs> oh, or band of horses, <laughs> but more dangerous. Mm-hmm. This river horse is riding high. <laughs> Oh, get out of here with that. Sorry for that dirty talk. <laughs> this is an all-ages podcast. Up. No, it is not, Corey. Stop telling people that. It's educational. We talk about <laughs> zoo books. <laughs> and whether or not dogs have butts. Gosh, honestly, I like Herd of Hippos better, but we did set up the rule that if we both picked the same one, that's our choice. So it uh, looks like we are going with Whistling Past the Graveyard. Okie dokie. Which I think is a, a solid contender. So I will put up a Twitter poll and we will uh, we will see if they can take down the new champs, the writhing obscenities. Man, I could like see those guys on a flyer together. Oh, totally. Yeah. I had to look that phrase up. I didn't realize that was actually a phrase that people said to, to mean, I guess, make the best of a bad situation. I saw it more as like, distract yourself to keep yourself from being afraid but hmm. it makes it but it means make the best of a bad situation i based on a very cursory and only reading the first google thing that came up i think cool were you able to find a timestamp in this issue yeah i found a few of them one of them we already talked about which was just very general but the color scheme yeah i agree very 80s color scheme. Yep. 
There was a couple other references. One on page eight to uh, Vanna White. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the other one, I think close to the beginning, about uh, calling Ghostbusters. Yeah, there were a couple of different Ghostbusters references in there. This came out in, I believe, 1987, this issue. And Ghostbusters, the first one was 84, and then the second one was 89. There was another reference which seems, I think, less timely than it actually was, and that is the opening King Kong quote. Now, King Kong itself, the movie that it's referencing, is, uh, I believe, a 1930s movie. But the fact that it says, the real one, in parentheses after that, is, I believe, a reference to the fact that there was a 1976 remake of King Kong starring Jeff Bridges, and in 1986, there was a sequel to that movie that came out that was called King Kong Lives. So that would have been within the year of this comic book coming out, King Kong Lives with Linda Hamilton, which I believe is part of what he is deriding by referring to the initial King Kong movie as the real one. Hmm. Nice. Well, Corey, it's time that we took this party to the Bozo. What instance of one character calling another character a bozo, either literally or metaphorically, do you want to highlight? I liked Cyborg's choice of words on page 22 when he referred to the serial monster as high pockets. Mm. I don't know that it's an insult or why he said it. I'm guessing just because the thing's really tall, and if it had pockets, they would be high above the ground. That is actually a turn of phrase that Roy Thomas has used a fair amount. It was what, in The Avengers, when he was writing that, he would always have people refer to Goliath as high pockets, because he was real tall. But I, I think it's a, a generic term that you would use to refer to tall people. But uh, yeah, I think that's pretty good. Yeah, I, I searched for it online and found uh, only two historical references. One, George Kelly, uh, American baseball player died in 1984, and Claire Phillips died in 1960. That was a American author and entertainer and a, a World War II spy for the U.S., whose codename was High Pockets. Neither of those made any sense as a space serial monster insult, though. Well, in her capacity as a spy, presumably Claire Phillips had to do some undercover work, so maybe they suspect that the serial monster is actually a disguised World War II spy? But that seems like a bit of a stretch. So, yeah, I think they're just saying that he's tall. Mm. Well, I liked it. Very good. For my entry into the Bozone, I had Todd calling a river a Bozo. There were a couple of instances of that and a couple of rivers that get taken down a peg. But both times, it just seems kind of gratuitous. Uh, the one I'm referring to is, as he and Raven are landing at the Titan Tower, he says, that water was pretty foul, all right, but at least it's a real river. Ever see the Los Angeles River? It's just a trickle with delusions of grandeur. Ouch. Yeah, take that, L.A. River. I mean, I get his point. <laughs> it's not a very impressive river, but still. Well, it's not like it's in competition with the East River. Hmm. Which also does get referred to later by his sister Jade as... Well, I get to dive headfirst into one of the world's smelliest rivers. Oh, man. I bet 
they can find smellier rivers than that. I would almost guarantee it. Mm. I feel like I've probably smelled smellier rivers than that. I don't know that I have a baseline. I don't know that I've smelled the Hudson River. Oh, you got to, Corey. I tell you, before they put in the, the big pipe here in, in Portland, come summertime after a spring rain, the uh, Willamette was pretty ripe. Yes, it was. Do you ever swim in the Willamette? I still can't bring myself to do it on account of all the raw sewage that was in it when I was when I was a kid. Yeah, I I swam in it at one point while there was still a fair amount of raw sewage in it, I'm pretty sure. Hmm. It wasn't a great idea, but you know, you take a shower after. Just make sure you don't drink any. Okay. This wasn't a good idea, Corey. I was in my twenties. I did a lot of things. And almost none of them were good ideas. Oh yeah, yeah, that's true. Well, speaking of people who have done a lot of things, in the year of our Lord, 1989, and the month of our Lord, March, what was Aqualad probably up to? Corey, Wapoot. Mm. So we've talked, or uh, I've talked probably too much about Aqualad's role in the creation of what came to be known as the World Wide Web. But in this month, there was uh, another facet to that story that I thought was worth bringing up. And that is that one of his mentors, when he was doing his internship at CERN, the research facility in Switzerland, was a British computer scientist by the name of Tim Berners-Lee. And Aqualad would just regale him with tales of the complexities of the Atlantean uh, ecosystem, often referring to it as the web of life. And Berners-Lee couldn't get that idea out of his head. And it really contributed to the first proposal that he submitted to his boss for what at the time was called the information management system, which, you know, some people think is the blueprint for what became the World Wide Web. And his boss is quoted as saying it was vague, but exciting, which, hmm. you know, I think that's something that we can, we can all aspire to achieving at some point <laughs> in our lives. Very nice. Do you think... Aqualad is upset that it gets called the internet because he canonically has had issues with nets in the past. Oh, yeah. No, he thinks it should have been called the Web of Life. <laughs> oh, man, that is a better name. Yeah. Well, that may have been one thing that Aqualad was probably up to. The other thing that Aqualad was up to was getting real spooked. Oh, no. See, Aqualad likes him some sexy horror books as much as the next guy wait what is a sexy horror book and so he read Anne rice's the mummy oh about a sexy mummy who sexes it up in Mummyburg. probably <laughs> it's been a while i did actually read that book and i remember thinking like this is no a less sexy mummy that's a weird idea yeah. But Aqualad read the book, and he was he was real spooked by it. I mean, a little turned on, but real spooked. And so, when he heard on May 18th that in Cairo, a 4,400-year-old mummy had been found in the Pyramid of Cheops, he was just like, Oh, keep that sexy bastard away from me! Oh, no! And he got really freaked out. He, he, he stayed inside for a week just to make sure that that sexy darn mummy couldn't get anywhere near him. And then he finally was like, you know what, I, I, I need to calm down. I'm, I'm going to treat myself to a nice pan au chocolat. Uh, mm. I, I'm going to go to Paris, have myself a nice, relaxing 
time, enjoy the city, eat a pastry. And when he got there on May 29th, boy, was he disturbed because he, he when he was approaching the city, he looked out his plane window. And what did he see? Pyramid. A brand new pyramid. <laughs> I am Pei's new entryway to the Louvre, which is pyramid shaped, had just been built. And he was like, oh, no. That sexy son of a bitch has gotten here, too. <laughs> and he was freaked the fuck out. And that's what Aqualad was probably up to in March of 1989. Just being freaked out by that sexy, sexy mummy. Damn. Kind of makes you want to go back and reread the mummy, huh? Ah, if I want a sexy mummy these days, I can watch the mummy movies. Are those based on the Anne Rice books? No, but they got a sexy mummy in them. Oh. Or I could watch the, uh, I think it was the 60s Peter Cushing movie that was about a mummy. Mm. That was pretty sexy. Yeah. So, you know, nowadays we've got a lot of different options if we want to see a sexy sex mummy. Back then, <laughs> you had to read a Anne Rice novel. <laughs> oh my gosh, what a world. <laughs> yes, to paraphrase Shakespeare... What a brave new world that has such sexy sex mummies in it. <laughs> oh my god. Well, thank you so much for joining me, and uh, I'm sorry for making you read this comic book, Corey. I forgive you. Thank you for talking with me about it. You're welcome. We'll be back next week to talk about a hopefully better comic, the continuation of the Six-Fingered Hand saga in The Defenders. I'm looking forward to that. And then we'll be back in two weeks to talk about New Teen Titans number, gosh, are we up to 38 now? 38 or 39. Goodness. Where does the time go? Well, in the meantime, if you would like to get into touch with us, you can do so by reaching us at our post office box at Tighten Up the Defense P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon 97294. Or, as this is the future, we can also be reached electronically at ttwasteland at gmail.com. And heck, if that isn't enough for you, if you're uh, into the social medias, then you can probably find us on there too. Just uh, cast your ancient runes on a stone tablet and ask the spirits to summon you up that which you most desire to see. And after you scroll past all of those sexy mummy pictures, then you'll probably find uh, me talking about the Time Shaft ate seven hot dogs, because that's pretty much all I want to talk about on social media these days. And hey, if you can't find us there, there's another place that you can look, and that's deep inside your heart. We'll be in there. Reading Anne Rice's novel, The Mummy. Mm. Trading back and forth our copies with the highlighted sections. Uh-huh. Okay. And seeing how many hot dogs we can eat. Mm. I mean, I'm no shaft. Yeah, seven is probably too many. I could eat seven hot dogs, but I wouldn't know that I ate them, which is how I know I'm not ready to be a great detective. Did you watch the contest with the guy, at competitive eater, and the bear eating hot dogs? You know what? I think I did. That was amazing. The bear won, right? Yeah, or did uh -huh. the bear just lose interest? No, the bear just ate that. It just could just like use his giant bear paw to like, you know, 
put lots of hot dogs in its mouth at once, which was, you know, not really a fair advantage. Corey, do you think Shaft is a bear? No. He's a complicated man. <laughs> oh, and no one understands him but his woman, who may or may not be named John Shaft. Yeah, that's confusing. Hmm. If you'd like to donate to the show, you can do so by checking us out at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do and you make a donation, you get access to a whole bunch of bonus material. There is the monthly podcast, What the Duck, a podcast most foul but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. That is the Howard the Duck podcast that I co-host with my wife, Lisa. There's a whole bunch of video reviews of classic comics that I've made that are up there, and there's a bunch of other stuff, too. And that is all exclusively available for our donors. Yep. So that's one reason you might uh, consider becoming a patron, but another reason, for me a more important one, is that it lets us know that you care about the show and would like us to be able to continue doing it. Uh, It really means a heck of a lot to me, so thank you for that. If you would like to support the show non-monetarily, well, there are a number of ways you can do that. Corey, what are some of them? You could send us a postcard at our P.O. box. Oh, that is nice. That doesn't really support the show, but it's it's a very nice gesture that I like. Oh, I see. You could leave us a review. You could tell a friend that they should listen to the show or leave us a review. You could tell a sexy mummy to listen to the show. Hmm. Your mileage may vary. How? Well, don't they? They're all gauzed up. Can they hear? Can mummies hear? Well, you could make, you could, you know, make an addendum to their cartouche. I don't think they would like that. I don't know what that means. It sounds sexy, though, doesn't it? (laughs) A cartouche. Those were those rings with the hieroglyphics that you could get for your partner that had their name spelled out in hieroglyphics in an 80s catalog. Really? I think so. I thought they were just like the little, uh, like, monogrammed plate that you would get onto your uh, sarcophagus. That's probably more accurate. So... On the list of things that we aren't sure what they are, culottes, cartouches. So you can support the show by leaving a review. (laughs) Corey, do you think maybe a cartouche is a culottes? No, no. It's a hieroglyphic-related thing. Okay. I'm pretty sure. And we're sure that culottes aren't. Well, no, I mean, they're made out of... You could put any kind of fabric on them, right? Or make them from any fabric? Right, including one that had a cartouche? Or a hieroglyphic print. Okay, so leave us a review telling us what a culotte is. Just uh, put down what you think a culotte is, and whether or not they are in any way related to cartouches, and then say five stars. Mm, That's the important part. Okay, well thanks for doing that. We'll be back next week, and until then, splo-osh. And don't read this comic. <laughs> Bye. Bye. And they knew it. I farted a loud fart. Is that what that was? I thought that was... I don't know what I thought that was. An earthquake? Or just like...
separating two large pieces of Velcro for some reason. Yeah, I guess kinda. <laughs> <laughs> I got a hairy butts what I'm saying, Corey. <laughs> <laughs>